If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Continuing on in our series in the Gospel according to Luke, we're in verse 33 of chapter 5 today, and we're going to go to verse 11 in chapter 6. So there's a lot to do uh, in this text, so we're going to get right to it. You can follow along with me as we read from the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 33 of Luke chapter 5. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not be washed out. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to, the, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another, what they might do to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's Word. Father, we do ask for Your help now that we would have soft hearts and open ears to hear the Word of God and to not just hear it, but to do it, to obey it, Father, and believe. We pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for grace to speak the things that are true and faithful to the Scriptures. And we pray, God, as we always do, that You would grant us discernment as we are living in the last days. And You tell us that there will come among us those who do not know the truth but deny it. And so we pray for discernment, God, that we would hold fast in light of the fact that we are living in, in the very end of the age, awaiting only the return of our Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would have grace now to believe His Word. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as you heard in our reading of the text, this passage before us is composed of three stories, and those stories are tied together by a common thread, and that thread is conflict. Conflict. Three times, Jesus runs into a question, typically from the religious leaders or, or 
instigated by them. And each time, with each question, there is trouble. Even opposition. First, there's a question about fasting, which seems simple enough. Next, the Pharisees come with, a, with an objection about the Sabbath, which is part of the Ten Commandments, so the stakes are getting higher. And then finally, there's another Sabbath complaint, but at the end of that, there's not resolution. Instead, the Pharisees go out and plot what they must do to Jesus. And it's not anything good that they're plotting. So you don't have to read very far between the lines to sense their hostility, do you? By the end of the passage, the religious leaders will do anything in their power to stop this man. So it's only chapter 6 in Luke's Gospel, but already, already the cross is firmly in view. Jesus will have to lay down His life. And shockingly, it will be the religious leaders of His own people who lead the cries for His death. The whole passage is tied together by conflict. Conflict. Now, as readers of the Bible, the question that we face today is why does Luke include these conflict stories together in his Gospel account? Why does he group them all together, back to back to back? What's the purpose in telling us about this opposition? Well, think about what conflict does, friends. Nobody likes to go through conflict. It's hard to endure. But conflict can be clarifying, can't it? It can sharpen or define the things that are true. And that's the case here in Luke's Gospel. These conflicts clarify the truth about Jesus. With each moment of opposition, the picture of who Jesus is, the picture of His identity becomes sharper. The edges stand out in greater relief and the truth comes into clearer focus. And that's the point of this passage, friends. That's what Luke is doing here. Luke groups all of these conflicts together in order to give us a clearer picture of Jesus' identity, just who is this man, as well as what it is that Jesus came to do. So that's how we need to proceed this morning, by paying attention to what Luke is telling us about Jesus through the conflict. Remember, friends, just as an aside here, every single sermon is, a, is our humble attempt to take God's Word on its own terms. We don't get to pick what truth we hear from God, but also we don't get to pick how we hear it. Right? The shape of the passage gives us the shape of the message. That's what preaching is. Preaching is taking God's Word on God's terms in order to give God's truth to God's people. That's why you've got to preach the Bible. So the shape of the text gives us the shape of the message. Luke's got three conflict stories, so what do we need to hear? Three truths about Jesus. Three ways that the conflict sharpens who it is that Jesus is, or at least sharpens our understanding. And so that's what we're going to look at today. There's three conflicts, three pictures of Jesus' identity. Each one adds something different, but taken together, they provide greater definition of the truth. So let's take each picture one at a time. The first comes in verses 33 to 39 of chapter 5. Jesus is the bridegroom of joy. Jesus is the bridegroom of joy. Sometime after Jesus attended Levi's party, you'll remember that from last week, he went to the tax collector party. Sometime after that party, a group of people approach, uh, uh, approaches Jesus and they have a question about fasting. 
And technically, the religious leaders of Judaism are not named in verse 33, but the context would indicate that they are involved. Perhaps they're instigating in the background. That's what cowards do. So notice again the question, verse 33. And they said to Jesus, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Fasting, you know, is purposefully abstaining from something, most often food, in order to focus your heart and mind on on something greater. And even today, for Christians, fasting remains a legitimate expression of devotion. But in Jesus' day, fasting was not simply a religious expression. Fasting was very much at the core of Jewish religious life. It was an important practice. It was an expression of anticipation. It could have been anticipation of God renewing His people. Remember, the Jews live under the thumb of the Romans at this point. Or it could have been anticipation of your own personal renewal before God. Whatever the specifics in Jesus' day, fasting revealed your longing for something greater. And that longing added a somber note to the practice of fasting. Something is missing. Something is off. And almost like mourners at a funeral, we're waiting for something to come. That's what the fasting was about. So the question in verse 33 that they asked Jesus is not a small question. Compared to the other religious groups of the day, Jesus' disciples who are eating and drinking and going to parties with tax collectors, compared to all the other people's disciples, Jesus' disciples appear less than devout. (laughs) Which, Which of course is just an accusation against Jesus. No disciple is above his master. So if Jesus' disciples look like party-going you know, libertines, then what does that say about Jesus? That's the suggestion in verse 33, that Jesus is less than pious. But Jesus' response in verse 34 makes clear that the question misunderstands both the times and Jesus' identity. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast? while the bridegroom is, is with them? Most of us have been to a wedding reception, right? Some of us maybe even been to some wedding receptions recently. Would you ever go to a wedding reception and sit somberly in the corner, not eating the cake, not participating in the toast, and when somebody comes and says, what's, what's wrong? You say, oh, I'm fasting. Would you ever do that? I hope you'd say no. Like, don't do that. Even if you are fasting, eat the cake when you go to the wedding reception because that's what you do. You celebrate at wedding receptions. You don't fast. And that's Jesus' point. When you're with the bridegroom, you rejoice. His joy is your joy. So at least on the surface, it's a very simple analogy from Jesus. You misunderstand the day, He says. You're acting like it's a funeral. It's a wedding reception. But at the same time, friends, Jesus is doing more with this simple analogy than what we might first think. He's also making a significant claim. You see, Jesus doesn't get the image of a wedding reception out of thin air. He gets it actually from the Bible, from the Old Testament. He gets it from Scripture. And when you look at the Old Testament, and you notice how the Old Testament uses this image of a bridegroom, it becomes clear Jesus is talking about way more than fasting. In fact, listen to some of these examples from the Old Testament. And as I read these passages, notice who the bridegroom is in the Old Testament. Isaiah 54, verse 5, the prophet says to Israel, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts, 
is His name. Or Isaiah 62, verse 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or Hosea 2.16, God says to Israel, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. So you can hear the connection, can't you? In the Old Testament, the image of a bridegroom is often used to describe God's connection with His own people. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, the image is very powerfully used to picture what will happen when God Himself comes to act and restore and save and redeem His wayward people. And that's the key to Jesus' seemingly simple analogy. To speak of the bridegroom in Jesus' day was to anticipate the, the coming action of God. The coming work of even the Messiah to redeem and restore and call back to Himself His wayward people. So look again at verse 34 here in Luke 5. When Jesus says these people misunderstand the times, He's also saying that they misunderstand Him. He is the Bridegroom. He is the Messiah. He is the embodiment of God's redemptive action in and among His people. This is what you've been waiting for, Jesus says. And just as you shouldn't fast at a wedding reception, so also you shouldn't fast when the Messiah is standing in front of your face. Right now is a time of joy because God is acting to keep His promises and God is acting in Jesus. You see, it's Jesus' presence that makes all the difference here. Because of Jesus, the times have changed. Because of Jesus, even the age-old practices of Judaism have to be re-examined and understood Fresh. So it's a simple analogy, but it's one that's making a significant claim about who Jesus is. But Jesus is not finished. Notice verse 35. To make His point even clearer, Jesus reinforces the centrality of His own presence. Verse 35. And listen for how Jesus makes all the difference here. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, this is really helpful. Jesus is not opposed to fasting. (laughs) Jesus is not opposed to being religiously devout. There is a day coming when He will be taken away. And then His disciples will fast. That's a reference to the end of Jesus' ministry when He ascends again to the Father. When that day comes, then we'll need to anticipate again the coming of the Messiah. But right now is not that day, Jesus says. Right now is not that time. Right now, the bridegroom is here. And that means Jesus' disciples rejoice rather than mourn. They feast rather than anticipate. They celebrate rather than wait. Because Jesus is here. Again, that's the crux of the matter. The issue here really isn't about fasting. It's about recognizing Jesus for who He is. Jesus is not just another teacher like the Pharisees or even like John the Baptist. If He was just another teacher, then sure, fast all you want because He's just a teacher. But the reality is that Jesus is not a mere teacher. He's the bridegroom. And His presence means that now is a time to rejoice. Now is a time to celebrate. As you might guess, this changes things both for Judaism and for the Pharisees. And that's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 36. Look there. Jesus tells a parable that captures what is at the heart of all of this opposition that He endures. Notice Jesus' parable, verses 36 and 37. 
He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. So two parables that make the same point. The old and the new cannot be mixed together. You can't mix the old and the new, and you can't use the old to contain the new. If you put a new patch on an old shirt, it ruins the new shirt, and the old shirt just looks weird. Or if you put new wine into old, brittle wineskins, wineskins are just a, just a piece of animal hide, and you have to put new wine in new wineskins because old wineskins are too brittle. And if you put the new wine in, as it keeps fermenting, it just blows up. And then you ruin the wineskins and you ruin the wine. You've got to put new wine in new wineskins, Jesus says. But the point is the old and the new can't mix together. The old and the new don't go together. And that's why the religious leaders struggle with Jesus. They're trying to put the new wine, Jesus, into the old wineskins, Judaism. You see? They don't go together though. To put it very bluntly, you cannot demand that Jesus fit the practices of old covenant religion. You can't understand Jesus simply from the perspective of Judaism. The old covenant is coming to an end. And the new covenant Jesus says, is being inaugurated. And that means you can't insist on the old and expect to be in on what God is doing in Jesus. Now, if you know the rest of the story, and I'm sure most of you do, then you know that the Pharisees don't like Jesus' explanation. They don't don't really want to hear that the old and the new don't go together, just as Jesus anticipates in verse 39. You see where He says, nobody after drinking the old wine desires the new. Jesus is saying, if you're hooked on the old, you won't even go for the new. And that's the Pharisees' problem. They're too tied to the old. They like the old too much. They don't have a taste for the new. But for us today, Jesus' point should still get our attention. And it should probably remind us of something that's central. The way to know God is not found in merely external religious practices like fasting or or ritual prayers. Those things may be good, and they may even have a purpose at particular times, but those practices, even when rightly followed, cannot bring us to God. Only Jesus can do that, for only Jesus is the bridegroom. You can't keep following the old and expect to experience the blessings of the new. It doesn't work. And I want to press this home just a bit. I had a professor at school uh, who taught us the Gospels, and he said maybe the biggest danger when you read the Gospels is you always read from the winner's perspective. Right? You always read as if you're better than the people who aren't getting it. Right? And so it's easy for us to read this and just shake our heads at the dim-witted Pharisees and think, God, those people are so dense. But in reality, we're probably a lot more like them than what we think. And so I just want to press this home for a bit. When it comes to religious practices, we can easily make the same mistake that the Pharisees are making, at least in general, if not in specifics. Think about the person who says, I'm a Christian because I don't do this or I always do that. Right? I'm a Christian because I don't do this thing, whatever it is, or I always do that thing, whatever it is. 
It's something external. And why those religious practices may be good, and why there may, while there may even be some benefit to personal life and personal morality, those things are no substitute for the atoning blood of Christ. In fact, if you're here this morning, and you think you're a Christian because you always do this, or you never do that, then Jesus would say that you're missing the point. You might not be a Christian. If your confidence before God rests on the fact that, well, I always do this and I never do that, there's no replacement for faith in the Son of God. It's only the Son of God who opens us, who opens the way into the Father's presence. So whether it's fasting or prayer or some other act of devotion, even well intentioned, we need to be careful that we keep such things in their rightful place. Look, it can be as innocuous as, well, I always do my daily Bible reading plan, and therefore I'm a Christian. No, friend. It's good that you read your Bible every day, but that's not why you're a Christian. Or, I'm a Christian because I never do this set of sins that's really, really heinous. Well, it's good that you not do heinous sins, but that's not why you're a Christian. It's faith in the Son of God who shed His blood and rose again. That's the only reason anyone is a Christian. And so that's the exhortation for us. We need to make sure that we keep these good but not essential things in their right place. And so let's be mindful always of why we enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. It's not because of our piety, but because of Jesus' identity. He's the bridegroom, and we're just guests at the feast. We're just guests at the feast. He's the bridegroom, and we have joy with God because of who Jesus is, not what we may or may not do. As we keep going in the passage, all of this talk about new wine and new wineskins might leave us scratching our heads for a more tangible example. I know it does for me sometimes. Just, just exactly what are you talking about, Jesus? How does this work out? And in God's kindness, the next conflict adds some clarity. So you want to know what it looks like to try to put new wine in old wineskins? Verses 1-5 through five of chapter 6 are the illustration. God gives us clarity here. And in these verses, 1-5, to we get that second picture of Jesus that we need to note. We saw that Jesus is the bridegroom of joy. Now we see that Jesus is the Lord over tradition. Jesus is the Lord over tradition. The scene shifts to the Sabbath, which you'll remember was a day of rest according to the law of Moses. You couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, in particular, had built some pretty extensive rules to define what constituted work on the Sabbath. And their motivation was understandable. If we build a fence around the Sabbath, then we can keep people from actually breaking the commandment. Right? So if the commandment is here in the center, and we build a broad enough fence that keeps people away from actually getting close to sinning, then we'll all be good. Right? It's commendable motivation if misguided. And so for the Pharisees, the Sabbath day was of high concern. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. And once again, they decide that they're going to target Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 2. They object to the disciples picking grain as they go from one town to the next. This is breaking the law. 
according to the Pharisees. Not because the disciples are picking somebody else's grain, the law of Moses allowed you to do that, but because they're working on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. Now, the disciples are not actually working on the Sabbath. But that's what the Pharisees are saying. You're breaking the law because you're doing work. You're threshing grain, you're kneading grain, you're preparing a meal and you're eating it. You're just lawbreakers, they say. And they're upset. And that sounds kind of nitpicky to us, but that's the point. The disciples are crossing that fence that the Pharisees have built around the Sabbath day. Jesus' response, however, raises the stakes beyond what the Pharisees expect. The Pharisees want to argue about details of the law, but Jesus is talking about something deeper. Jesus is talking about authority. And specifically, who has the authority over the life of God's people? That's what Jesus wants to talk about. So notice his response. And once again, Jesus goes to the Old Testament, this time from the life of David, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now Jesus refers here to 1 Samuel 21 when David was on the run from, from Saul. You may remember the moment we preached through First and Second Samuel. You may remember that. David needs food in First Samuel 21, and he comes to the priest, uh, and he asks for food. But the only food that they have is the bread of the presence, which is kept inside the tabernacle, and it's reserved only for the priests. And yet, the priest in First Samuel 21 gives David the holy bread, and then David takes and gives it to his men. Now, did David go beyond what the law permitted? Yes, technically, according to a strict application of the law. But, but strikingly, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that David was wrong. That's the key. In 1 Samuel 21, it's clear that the priest was right to give David the holy bread. Why? Why does David get the bread? Well, remember who David is. The focus here is not on what David did, but who David is. Okay, Remember who David is. He's the Lord's anointed. He is the king whose position foreshadows the Messiah. So it's not just that David had a great need that allowed him to take the bread. There may be some truth to that. But the bigger point has to do with authority. As God's anointed, David has a unique authority that pointed to something greater, or we could say to someone greater. So catch what Jesus is doing here. He's reading the Old Testament entirely in light of Himself. He reminds the religious leaders of what David did, which, by the way, the Pharisees knew that passage, and they had no problem with David taking the bread. They would not object to David taking the bread. And Jesus says, you don't object to David because you understand who he is, but what you don't understand is that I'm David's Lord. I'm greater than David. And this passage in 1 Samuel 21 is telling you something about me. Jesus is highlighting His own authority. And in fact, that's precisely where Jesus goes in verse 5. How do we know that Jesus is talking about authority and not bread? Look at verse 5. Jesus says, And He said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now in the original, Lord is the first word. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, Authority, I have it because I'm the Son of Man. 
Right? His emphasis is on what he possesses. I take this to be a high point in Luke's Gospel for understanding the identity of the Lord Jesus. David was great, but the Lord Jesus is greater than David. The Lord Jesus is David's Lord, which means Jesus is King, which by the way has been popular to say for 2,000 years, not just the last week. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the ruler of God's people. And therefore, Jesus has authority even over the Sabbath. The Sabbath submits to Jesus, not the other way around. Or to say it more directly, Jesus is the ultimate point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath finds its meaning in Jesus. Remember, the Sabbath was about rest. Friends, God promised His people rest. The Sabbath pointed to that rest. But significantly, it's Jesus who provides the rest. That's what Jesus is saying. This is incredibly important, friends. This is a high point in Luke's Gospel. Think about how clearly this reveals Jesus' identity, His deity even, as the Son of God. It's a very simple argument. Who established the Sabbath day? God did at the beginning of creation. And then He codified it in the fourth commandment. God established the Sabbath. So only God has the authority over the Sabbath. So when Jesus says that He's Lord of the Sabbath, He's not simply winning an argument about the law with the Pharisees. It's much more than that. Jesus is asserting very clearly His identity as God in the flesh. What God created, I rule. Because I am God. In human flesh and blood. You see, the Pharisees have it backwards. They demand that Jesus submit to the Sabbath, but what they don't realize is that Jesus as God in the flesh is Lord even of the Sabbath. It all belongs to Him. At this point, we might be thinking how this connects with us. We see the Christological truth about Jesus. We see that He's claiming deity here, which encourages our worship. But what about all these Sabbath details? What's the connection with Christians today? In 2019, how does this relate? What's the bridge from this to us? And full disclosure here, I'm going to tell you, just put all my cards on the table, so to speak. I am not a Sabbatarian. So I hold that the Sabbath was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who provides the ultimate rest for the people of God. The Sabbath, then, is not binding on God's new covenant people. That's my view. But that raises the question then, doesn't it? How, do the, how, does the, how does all this conflict connect with us? If they're fighting about the Sabbath, what's the bridge from Jesus' day to ours? Well, I would say the third scene provides the answer. In verses 6 to 11, there's yet another Sabbath, but it, uh, another Sabbath conflict, but it helps us get to the heart of the issue. So notice with me here the third picture of who Jesus is, and this helps build the bridge from them to us. Jesus is the Savior of the needy. He's the bridegroom of joy. He's the Lord over tradition. And Jesus is the Savior of the needy. Verse 6 presents Jesus doing what He normally does. He's in the synagogue teaching from the Scriptures. And there's a man present there with a physical need. His right hand is withered. Luke doesn't tell us how it got that way or what it is. It's just the man's hand doesn't work. So pretty normal setting. Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching. Somebody's there who needs help. But in that normal pattern, there's also something ominous. Notice verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched Him to see whether He would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse Him. 
Now, everything about verse 7 is sinister. Right? Um, when it says they watched him, one commentator says they looked at him out the side of their eyes. Right? They're giving him the side eye. They're, they're eyeing him. They're, they're looking at him like you might look at a criminal. And they're waiting for him to do something wrong so that they can accuse him. Again, the question is whether or not Jesus will adhere to the Pharisees' rules about the Sabbath. According to the Pharisees, only urgent physical needs could be dealt with on the Sabbath. So for example, if somebody was about to die, or if a mother was about to give birth, you could help that person. But if it wasn't urgent, then they needed to wait. Right, you got a sinus infection, you stubbed your toe, you sprained your ankle. That's, I'm sorry, you have to wait till tomorrow for us to help you. Because if we help you, that's doing work. Okay, that, So that's their rules, and they want to see if Jesus will adhere to them. And they obviously don't think the man with the withered hand is urgent. He's lived his whole life with a withered hand. He can wait one more day. He can wait. They want to see if Jesus will adhere to that. But once again, Jesus is far too wise to fall for their trap. Jesus knows what they're thinking, verse 8, and he asks a question in verse 9 that brings the issue into the light. Notice Jesus' question, verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now, if that sounds like an easy question to you, that's because it is. In other Gospel accounts, we hear Jesus say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So of course you should do good on the Sabbath day. That's the whole point of the day. Right? The Sabbath was made to be a blessing to the people of God, not a burden. So the most Sabbath-honoring thing you could do is heal the man. And anybody who's read the Old Testament should know that answer. Right? It's rather obvious, or at least it should be. But notice what happens in verse 10. Or perhaps I should say, notice what does and doesn't happen. The religious leaders don't answer. Verse 10. And after looking around at them all, Jesus said to him, that is to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. So, the religious leaders don't answer. Stubbornly. Jesus has turned the trap back on them. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? If they say yes, then they're admitting that Jesus is a good teacher. If they say no, then they're admitting that they don't understand the Bible, which they claim to be the experts in. So it's brilliant on Jesus' part. He's trapped them in their own unbelief. They can't answer. Even so, the Lord is not interested in simply playing games with them. He goes further, and to demonstrate His own authority, Jesus heals the man. And he does so, notice, only by speaking a word. He doesn't touch the man. He doesn't do any work, in other words. <laughs> right? He traps them, and then he says, and just to prove that I'm way far beyond what you think I am, I'm going to heal the man without doing any work. He says, be healed. The man is healed. And the healing is a divine stamp of approval. Who's the only person that could heal this man? God. Jesus heals him. Therefore, Jesus speaks with the authority of God. It's visible, undeniable proof that Jesus is authoritative. So to put it very plainly, if you want to understand both the Sabbath and the Scriptures, you should listen to Jesus and not to the Pharisees. That's Jesus' point. You would think that this would end all of the debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. I mean, how can you argue with a man whose hand is, is healed? you think that this would be the end. 
and you would be wrong. Notice how the religious leaders respond in verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to him. So when confronted with visible, undeniable truth, what do the religious leaders do? They suppress that truth. And they begin plotting how to get rid of Jesus. And understand, friends, the language here is very strong. The religious leaders are blinded by their rage. They're so angry that they cannot think straight. And they go out and they start to plot what to do to Jesus. Friends, this is one of the clearest instances in the Bible that humanity's problem is not a lack of evidence, but rather a hardness of heart towards God. The religious leaders have all the evidence in the world. They saw it with their own eyes, and yet they refused to believe. Humanity's problem is not a lack of evidence. It's a hardness of heart and a blindness to the truth. It's one of the clearest places in the Bible. And that's where the Sabbath controversies connect with us. That's where the bridge gets built from them to us. What we have in this text is really two contrasting ways of seeking to know God. Two contrasting ways of seeking to know God. One is pictured in the religious leaders who believe that external regulations are enough to bring them to God. And they believe this genuinely, it seems. They're very devout. They're very pious. But at the end of the day, they remain focused on the external. That's one way. And the other way is pictured in Jesus who keeps pressing home that our need is so great, only God can meet it. Like the man with the withered hand, humanity cannot heal itself. External prescriptions can only go so far. We need God to do what only He can do. And look, the good news of the Gospel is that God has graciously provided what humanity needs and He's provided it in Jesus Christ. Friends, it is very striking that this text ends with a clear anticipation of the cross. Verse 11. Where will all of this take Jesus? It will take Him to the cross. They went out and plotted what to do with Him. And what they will do with Him is crucify Him. The passage ends with a clear anticipation of the cross where Jesus will lay down His life for the salvation of His people. And if you think about it, friends, that's what the cross is. On one, on one hand, the cross is the final definitive proof that external practices cannot save us. The, the, the cross destroys the delusion that humanity can save itself. The cross thunders that no amount of fasting or law-keeping or anything else could ever bring us to God. The only thing that can bring us to God is the blood of His Son. The Pharisees can build all the fences they want. We can claim to follow all the religiously devout practices we want, and none of it will be enough to make us right with the Father. Only the cross of Christ can get to the heart. Only the Son of God shedding His blood can cleanse sinners like us. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus can give us the rest that the Sabbath anticipated. And so, it's not an overstatement. I want you to hear me very clearly. It is not an overstatement to say that the final word of these conflicts is actually about the Gospel. This text is about the work of Christ. Why do the religious leaders reject Jesus? Because in their pride, they refuse to admit that they cannot save themselves. Why does Jesus keep putting up with such fools? Because in humility, He has His eyes fixed on the cross. Where He will lay down His life and provide the remedy that no law could ever provide. The remedy of His own blood shed for the salvation of His people. And so, 
We close, brothers and sisters, with a call to renew our confidence in the work of Christ. If you're not a Christian today, your only hope, your only hope is found in a Savior who laid down His life for sinners like us. Being a Christian is not about always doing this or never doing that. It's about putting your hope and confidence in the Lord Jesus and in His blood shed for you. So won't you turn from your sin today if you don't know Him and trust in His name and be saved? If you are a Christian this morning, I pray you're encouraged by this reminder that though we could not provide rest for ourselves, though we could not heal ourselves or cleanse ourselves, the Lord Jesus has provided that rest. The Lord Jesus has provided the cleansing and He's done so by laying down His own life. May our faith in Him be strengthened then and may our hearts be continually humbled as we hold fast to the Gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank You, God, that You have drawn near to us in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that You would encourage us even now to look only to what He has done and not what we have done. And we pray in His name and for His glory. Amen.